A minimal creed, an ample science, and maximal faith. That is our aim. Welcome to Experiential Theology, the podcast where we investigate and talk about the relation between human experience and knowledge of God. Welcome back to the Experiential Theology podcast. This is episode 19. Today, we're going to be talking about paradox and experience in theology. Before we begin, I'm going to ask Ben to uh, give us a little introduction about Soren Kierkegaard and why we're going to be talking to him. I mean, about him. Go ahead, Ben. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Soren Kierkegaard is an important uh, philosopher. Some would call him a theologian as well. He um, lived in the 1800s in Denmark and, and was a prolific writer and, and had many, uh, many significant insights, to put, it, to put it bluntly, that really inspired a lot of 20th century theology and that, and that inspires me in particular, um, although I don't know if I'm doing much good with the knowledge that I have. I've, uh, I, I tried to understand... I tried to begin reading Kierkegaard many years ago, or maybe several years ago, and I didn't really know where to start. And so I asked around, and a recommendation that I got was to read a book entitled The Moment Before God. This book is written in 1956, and it's by someone named Martin J. Heineken, who I haven't really heard of otherwise. Uh, but he wrote this book about Soren Kierkegaard and it's almost like a it's almost like a book where he covers what he considers to be the major themes in Kierkegaard and tries to explain those themes so he's not woodenly attached to the Kierkegaard text he'll take the time to sort of have a long diversion and explain how he came to understand a certain theme in Kierkegaard and what it means to him and I found it really helpful so in many ways Kierkegaard can be a very intimidating author to read uh, but this book is very approachable. It's a way to to gather at least what one theologian got out of his career studying Kierkegaard. What what did Kierkegaard mean to him? And it's it's worth it's worth definitely worth the price of admission. So I recommended the book to you, and you seem to have ordered it. And uh, somebody likes your copy so much that they pulled some of the pages out. It would seem right. <laughs> yeah. I think if it's an old book, you have to get a used copy. I think it's impossible to find a new copy. And whoever owned this beforehand really liked 30 pages and yanked them out. <laughs> so we're going to look at chapters two and three. And our theme today is talking about paradox, which is a which is something that Kierkegaard has a lot to say about. Uh, personally, I Kierkegaard had a reputation from my perspective of embracing paradox. And that was a reason for me years ago to ignore him because I wasn't interested in paradox in theology. I wanted a straight answer to straight questions. I didn't want any of this mumbo jumbo about the impossible possibility and so on in theology. <laughs> and so, so I was not interested in Kierkegaard and yet it turned out that many of the people I respected respected him. So. So I realized I needed to come to grips with, with Kierkegaard. And uh, these two chapters of this book by Heineken really helped me to understand the role that paradox plays in theology and in Christian faith. And I think it set me in a, a much healthier direction. Uh, what about you? What's your, what's your uh, posture towards paradox in theology and sort of how has it changed over the years? Well, I mean, I have not read Kierkegaard directly, uh, I read a bunch of quotes and a number of theologians who are directly influenced by him. So for me, it's all second or third hand even, but even second or third hand, I feel like it's been, it's been, uh, it's been a good paradigm shift to think of theology less analytically and more paradoxically. I think that's very, very helpful and healthy. It, it, it too carries risks, and I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point, maybe. But overall, I would say it's a healthier approach. Right, yeah. For me, I, I, my undergrad education is in physics and mathematics, and so 
in those fields, paradox is not really valued or encouraged because uh, at least in mathematics, math is a basically the, the process of being super clear and super consistent and defining your terms and then building stuff out of your, out of your terms. So, so there's no real paradox in, in mathematics, at least in this sense at all. It's about clarity, at least, even when it's difficult to understand. Um, yeah, okay, so, so in theology, why should it be any different? That's what we want to kind of understand today. So I'm going to, I'll we'll call out some page numbers because you and I need to communicate, even though this is a podcast. So I'm on page 22. Uh, I'm going to read a quote. Our author, Heineken, writes, the paradox is the absolute barrier which blocks the way to a mere intellectual appropriation of a God idea and forces man to be confronted with the living God in the hiddenness of his revelation. So we, at least here, what we have is we got a purpose for a paradox um, that you may, we may approach theology with the goal of um, intellectual appropriation, the idea that we could categorize and control uh, God through our appropriation of, of knowledge of God. Well, the paradox is an obstacle to that, which is maybe why I found it frustrating at first. Any thoughts on that? Oh yeah, I think this is an excellent quote. And uh, yeah, the mere intellectual appropriation of a God idea. It, it makes me think of bad apologetics. I mean, there's good apologetics, but most apologetics is kind of bad because this is what they try to do. They try to just intellectualize the faith and they, they have way too much faith in their reason or in their capacity to objectify God, salvation, and so forth. So I think this is this is good paradox. We need it. Yes, um, there's a there's a verse in in Romans that I have been troubled by for many years even as a, as a young person, which goes something like this. Um, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for the salvation of those who believe. And I, personally, I feel like I have been, I have considered myself to be ashamed of, of what I consider to be the gospel. And I think that the reason I felt ashamed is because I thought I'm believing what other people consider to be fairy tales. And I'm, and if they start to criticize what I believe, I'm going to have nothing smart to say about it. <laughs> I'm just, I'll just be like, well, that's what my mom told me. <laughs> that's not going to really make me feel very smart when people come and criticize me for what I believe. Of course, maybe this fear is overwrought because most people don't even want to talk about religion with you anyway. So, <laughs> mm -hmm. but, but yeah, I was always amazed at like, how, how, how could Paul be not ashamed of the gospel? How could I? become someone who's not ashamed of the gospel. And yeah, I think one of the first approaches to solving that, to lessening that shame is just to try to be a smart Christian, mm -hmm. to be among the smarties. I think this is why C.S. Lewis is so popular is because he makes Christians feel smart, even when they're not. Yeah. They mm -hmm. just read him and they're like, ah, I'm not a dummy. I'm, I'm smart. Just like this author, I'm reading his book. Um, so what like we're talking about the paradox in theology, we're talking about leaning into the, to the folly <laughs> in the sense we're talking about leaving behind this smarty pants Christianity to some extent to be, to face up to the fact that there is an obstacle, a brick wall that prevents us from intellectual appropriation of this theology. And yeah, so how, how are we going to not be ashamed of the gospel if that's the case? We're just going to have to be a total paradigm shift. Yeah. I like how you use the C.S. Lewis example. I think a lot of us can relate that there was a time in our Christian life where we were comforted 
we found solace in knowing that there were some smart PhDs out there or authors of renown who believe the things we believe. And they're like, well, if they believe it, then I guess I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my, so much false comfort. Okay. Um, yeah, we'll get to it. Well, hopefully we'll get to it, but I, it, when we talk about knowing your limits, I, I personally didn't feel comfortable in my growth um, just sort of waving my hand at, a, at the chalkboard and saying, how can we know anyway? Or where have our, how can we know? We're just human. We're just, we're limited. I really needed someone to show me what exactly my limits are in order to believe that they were actually there, if, if that makes some sense. Um, it wasn't just that it wasn't just by struggling with a theological problem and failing to answer it that I came to know my limits, if you know what I mean. Uh, so the doctrine of the Trinity, we talked about this last week. Like, I don't care what they say. I know how to count to three. I'm not going to pretend I don't know how to count to three to fit in amongst the pious. <laughs> so I have limits, but counting to three is not one of them. I can do this. Uh, <laughs> What I what I really needed was a sense of was a sense of what does it mean to 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 experience the world? Well, I experience the world from a perspective. I I don't have a, a bird's eye view of the world. I'm I see the world from behind my own eyeballs. Um, I'm bound by this perspective, and the language I use it doesn't have an absolute meaning. It means whatever I intend it to mean. When I use words, I they mean to me whatever I intend for them to mean, and they serve whatever purposes I, I mean to use them for. Uh, they might mean something different for you, but, but sort of like appreciating that this is how, this is what it means to talk was very helpful to me um, along the way as well. Yeah, and then there's, and then of course there's there's evidence and knowledge that we don't actually have. Like it's, it, I can be if somebody says there's no way you can know that, I kind of bristle my I sort of bristle in that think that as a challenge. But but if somebody says to me you don't have the evidence to to believe that, I'm like oh yeah okay that makes sense because I don't have the evidence I can't believe that that makes sense. <laughs> mm -hmm. So. It really makes a difference to me. And that's why I think I really like these two chapters here. It makes a difference to me to understand what the limits are, kind of where they come from, rather than just woe is me approach to theology. Like I'm just a worm of a human. Like I don't like that approach. I need to, we have some dignity in it and involves kind of knowing what we don't know to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Augustine, Augustine, whatever. Uh, faith seeking understanding, right? Faith seeking understanding, but not mastery. I think that's the crucial distinction here. We're not seeking mastery over anything, but we do want to understand to the extent that we can. Okay. Okay, well, let's continue then. So we talked about the paradox in theology or in the Christian faith is sort of an obstacle to our intellectual appropriation of God or ideas about God. Um, seeks to put us in a better posture instead. So the next few pages, like starting on page 26, Heineken starts to talk about what he thinks Kierkegaard thought to be the Christian paradox. What is the Christian paradox? And we can kind of give a, a sketch of this here. But it's roughly something like this, that Christianity says that what really matters is a person's posture towards a historical fact, and that historical fact is actually a historical individual, which is to say that Christianity is all about the posture of a human towards Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. Mm -hmm. And, and this is going to lead to some trouble uh, towards a paradox. So the first thing about it is that if it's all about 
our posture towards Jesus, Kierkegaard is very careful to separate um, the variable of when you were born. And notably, he doesn't seem to talk much about people who are born before Christ. <laughs> he mostly talks about people who were born alongside Christ and, and since then, right? He, but I, I, as far as I know, I don't know what he says much about posture towards Christ prior to Christ. That's an interesting question. Although he writes about Abraham in books, so I'm not sure. But anyway, so what he wants to say is that if you lived in the first century and you walked alongside Jesus, maybe you're Peter or John or James, you don't get an advantage. If Christianity is all about your relationship to Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the historical man, somehow the people who were actually beside him, they're not at an, a special advantage. And then he also wants to say that as time goes on and as Christianity essentially conquered the world so that Kierkegaard can be writing as an author in a predominantly Lutheran Denmark, and people can look back with satisfaction on the progress of Christianity in the world. He says that's also can't be an advantage. No, nobody today in the 1800 years since, that's what he would say, uh, is at an advantage either. So how can we separate this factor of time from this relationship? How can, uh, how can this historical person be the crucial thing to which we each must be related and yet we're all in the same posture depending on regardless of how of when we're born with respect to him this is kind of this is the problem the problem that's being set up here does that make sense <laughs> yeah we're following okay um so the way the way that the way that this works, uh, well, there's a phrase for it, a an important phrase in Kierkegaard, and one of my favorite phrases actually is this concept of contemporaneity with Christ. Kierkegaard says, and it's not really described in this book so much, or it's, it's not described in these chapters so much. Kierkegaard says, what really matters is contemporaneity with Christ, to be in this relationship of contemporaneity with Christ, such that I today can be contemporaneity can can enjoy contemporaneity with christ uh and people who walked alongside him could actually not be contemporaneity contemporaneity oh my goodness they they may not be in that relation to christ and this is because the treasure hidden in christ are in fact hidden uh they're not just there to be seen with the eyes or heard with the ears they involve a posture of a person towards the historical man Jesus of Nazareth in such a way that even today I can enter into that posture and I can receive what was just what was available also to those who were alongside him and in which many of them missed out on so I I, I think that's a super important uh, phrase I have a bit of a Pentecostal sympathy I've been I spent time in Pentecostal circles and I think that for better or for worse for richer or for poor, <laughs> literally, for private jets or for broken down car. Like, <laughs> they believe in contemporaneity with Christ. They believe that Christ, they're focused on cultivating their contemporaneity with Christ in some sense or another. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, okay, so how is contemporaneity with Christ possible? How is it possible to have the whole Christian faith built upon this relationship to the historical individual it's a scandal it's a mess the answer is apparently um, that jesus is the god man that god has become human in or as jesus christ that when we look upon jesus we're looking upon god as the author of john writes or has jesus say why do you want to see the father if you've seen me you've seen the father Mm -hmm. so that is this is the paradox that we're really gonna that we're really interested in here on page 34 uh Heineken writes um, the new testament is unequivocal in its witness that the presence of jesus among men was the presence of god 
Now I'm my my mind. I want to go technical all of a sudden and say, you don't have to be. Jesus doesn't have to be God for His presence to be God's presence. There's a difference between those two concepts, but I think I might be missing the point of the paradox here. So, <laughs> yeah. But the so okay. So why why do you think? Maybe you should uh, chime in here. <laughs> why do you think the, um, saying that Jesus is God or that God became a man? Why do you think that that's paradoxical at all? Why is that so hard to swallow? Well, uh, in the previous page, our author says Jesus, the God-man, is the absolute paradox. And I would agree with that. I mean, we've talked about it in the past, how in our context, right? Just talking about creation alone is a scandal. People are scandalized by the idea of creation. Even the idea of creation ex nihilo, that God created something out of nothing, that's just preposterous. It's crazy. People stagger at the thought. And so to take it one step further and say that the creator became incarnate in Jesus Christ, wow. That's a whole order of magnitude higher or more scandalous than, than the mere fact of creation, no idea. So I, I absolutely agree that if you look at all the religions out there, right? Judaism, Islam, Christianity, Buddhism, etc. This is by far the most scandalous uh, truth claim out there, in my opinion. The idea that God became a human being in Jesus Christ. It's a staggering thought. It really is. It's a staggering thought. And I would say it's a thought that is captivating and interesting even to unbelievers. I remember when I was in college, I had a friend, his name was Matthew. And uh, he was an English major, but uh, he took a bunch of religion classes. I was a math major, but I also took a bunch of religion and theology classes just because, you know, it's it's an interest it's an interest of mine. I wasn't trying to major in it, but I just enjoyed the subject, and he also enjoyed the subject tremendously. He didn't believe any of it, but to him it was unbelievably interesting. So, yeah, the idea of God becoming a human being, the idea of eternity entering time, is tremendous. The logos becoming flesh without ceasing to be logos, John 1. It's, 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 it's an unbelievable thought. It really is. Hmm. So, yeah, in a nutshell, what we're saying here is that it's the incarnation that is the absolute paradox uh, for Kierkegaard here, or at least it's being discussed in this book. So, okay, good. Uh, let's move on then to the nature of paradox in general and maybe we'll double back a little bit to this particular paradox but so i i i used to have very little patience for paradox as i mentioned because what i thought that that meant is that whoever was trying to sell me the paradox just didn't understand it so why should i follow them if they don't understand <laughs> and Yeah, so so that was a that was a problem. But let's talk about what let's talk about what a paradox is, and then we'll kind of double back, following the outline of this book, to talk about how paradoxes actually make sense that we have them and that we use them and that we that we have to live with them. So, first thing about paradox um, is that it's counter to appearances. That's what our author Heineken says. He says a paradox is something that runs counter to appearances. And the second thing he says is that a paradox involves an, a, a contradiction. And I, I mean, like, I really want to say an apparent contradiction. Um, but I think he makes fun of people saying that somewhere in here. <laughs> like, he, he says it's daft to say something like a seeming paradox because a paradox is a seeming seeming contradiction. <laughs> a seeming paradox is a seeming seeming contradiction. 
anyway mm-hmm. it's just a seeming contradiction we'll leave it at that um <coughs> sorry so a contradiction is like a linguistic contradiction or a propositional contradiction is goes something like this. And I, I really appreciated his clarity here. And maybe this seems obvious to everyone else, but I like to see it, it said in black and white. On page 38, he says, to say that a proposition is true is simply to say that it is contradictory, that it's contradictory is false. And to say that a proposition is false is to assert that it's contradictory is true. So what he's saying is when I say, when I say um, that ball is red, I am also saying that ball is not not red. <laughs> so I can't, I just can't say that ball is red and that ball is not red. Because mm-hmm. it's, it's basically gas and brakes of talking. Like you're putting the brakes on and the gas at the same time. To say something positive is immediately to say, is to also say everything that is the opposite of it. So you can't have it. So you can't have it both ways in that sense. Um, the incarnation paradox to say Jesus is God and Jesus is man or Jesus is human. There's no paradox. There's no contradiction there until you start saying things like, okay, God is everywhere and a person is just in one place. <laughs> now we're starting to have some contradictions or some to say that Jesus is everywhere and Jesus isn't just in one place. Now we're starting to connect what it means to be God, what it means to be a human, and, we, and they're starting to, to contradict. So there's plenty of fodder for contradiction in the incarnation as you, as you try to say it out loud. Yeah. Well, a perfect example would be just the doctrine of the Trinity, right? A lot of people believe it, a lot of people reject it. And people both believe it and reject it with bad reasoning. So some of the people who reject it, for, in, for instance, will say, well, one cannot be three, three cannot be one. True. But again, if you read really carefully Trinitarian theology, there are two different things that they're talking about. There is the one essence of the divine nature, and then there are three personalities, if you will. So they're not saying there's one person and there's three persons, or there's one essence and there's three essences. Is there's one essence within the uh, within the one essence? There are three uh, persons or agents of rela- relationality. I know it sounds very convoluted, but uh, yeah, I think that's a good example of actual contradictions and perhaps seeming contradictions. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Okay, uh, I'm going to read a quote on page 39. So, one of the reasons why one of the reasons why we uh, care about contradictions is that often we believe that that the truth isn't actually contradictory in real life. <laughs> so, on page 39, he says, "It is believed that reality itself must be free from contradiction." But this is precisely the claim that needs to be examined, namely whether or not we can adequately do justice to what confronts us in life without becoming involved in contradiction. So this sentence has got a lot going on. These two sentences have a lot going on. Uh, so he's, at first it sounds like he's challenging the idea that reality itself is free from contradictions. So what is a contradiction? I already said a contradiction is when you're saying something is both true and not true. So a contradiction is essentially a speech act. There's no contradiction without talking (laughs) or without writing something down. You have to form sentences in order to form a contradiction. So to say that reality is free from contradiction, I mean, all that would mean to say is that reality is free from talking. If nature just silently evolves and the planets go round the uh, electrons go up and down their ladder. <laughs> Light is created and emitted. <laughs> like there's no talking involved here. There's no contradictions involved um, because there's no, like con- we bring contradictions to the situation ourselves when, when we actually try to describe something. 
So without description, there's no contradiction. And so to say that reality is free from contradiction, I mean, we can achieve that very quickly just by not describing reality at all. Mm-hmm. And what, what he's saying, he says that we need to examine the thought that whether we can actually do justice to what confronts us in life without becoming involved in contradiction, which is to say, suppose that I decide to describe something, why do I have any reason to think that that'll even be possible? That my description, my powers of description are adequate to meet what I actually encounter in experience? That's the question. And that's the hubris actually. Once I grasped this point, I became much more receptive to paradox and theology. Because up till then, I had assumed that, well, if I see it, I can describe it. Mm. If it happens to me, I'll have words for it. Mm-hmm. If it happened to others, surely they would have been able to describe it accurately. Um, that is without contradiction. And uh, it turns out to not be the case. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, you see people, people who are into science fall into scientism. The idea that, you know, science has the power to quantify and measure and analyze and describe all of reality. Uh, basically, they don't know, they don't know enough about the philosophy of science. They think they know science, but until you actually examine what the philosophy of science entails, you don't really know the limits of what you can do with empirical science. And so a lot of people run into problems because they think that because you know, they have studied science, they're all of a sudden qualified and equipped to talk about anything within reality whatsoever, whether it be something that they can measure in study or not. And of course, that's, that's not the case. Good. Um, right, so experiential theology and paradox goes well together because a paradox, when you're willing to use a paradox, what you're really doing is saying, I don't know what to say. I've experienced something, I want to point to something, but this is the best I can do. And, and you're using your words, as we'll see in a bit more detail, to indicate that uh, your words seem paradoxical. They seem to violate the law of non-contradiction. You talk about the impossible possibility. Mm-hmm. This, this can mean that you're just at the limits of what you're able to do with your words. Um, which doesn't mean that you haven't experienced something. The, the most profound things that we can experience are things that we don't have words for, that we need to invent new words for. And, and sometimes that, in, that process of invention fails. It's like trying to build a sphere out of Lego. Like it's, uh, I've seen it done, but it doesn't look perfect. <laughs> it's just the tools that, we've, that we have are sometimes just Lego bricks and we're trying to build a sphere. So, so what, so what did you expect to happen when you started talking about it? See, yeah, go ahead. Uh, So I'm, I'm glad you're talking about the theme of the podcast, which is of course, experiential theology. It's very broad, but I feel like it really encompasses uh, the whole body of theology that we work with. And what we're talking about today with paradox, and the limitations of language to describe reality and alternate reality specifically, they go well together. Uh, I want to read something from page 45 here. Uh, I don't know if everybody can hear fireworks. It's July 4th, so happy Independence Day, American <laughs> listeners. <laughs> They're already celebrating in my neighborhood. It's going to go on until 3 in the morning, I guarantee you. Anyhow, oh <laughs> people are excited for the podcast. appreciate it. Page 45. So he says, our author, there is a distinct difference between thinking about something and trying to understand it on the one hand and actually experiencing it or being confronted by it and participating in it on the other. 
So there is a difference between thinking about motion and trying to understand it on the one hand and actually experiencing or being confronted by things moving and participating in the moving on the other. Skip a few lines. So by analogy, there is a difference between thinking about Christianity and trying to understand it, also a legitimate enough occupation in its proper place, and actually having the Christian experience and being involved with one's whole existence in being a Christian. I think this is very, very powerful. And I think that if people can understand this, I mean, that's really, this is really gonna change the trajectory of their theology. I mean, once you really grasp this idea, you can never really do theology the same. I think a lot of people could maybe try to read this book and they may or may not understand it, but I think people can understand this, that experiencing something is one thing, talking about something is another. And yeah, this is why uh, I think Kierkegaard has to use paradox because he's trying to describe something that has to be experienced that cannot be adequately enough described with words, whether they be written or verbal. That's what I thought when I read this little paragraph. What do you think? That's it. It's paradox and experience that um, I think that the use of paradox in theology should make space for the experience because, because they're different, right? And we start to see that the value of theology isn't in our words, but it's in the thing that they try to describe. Uh, that the value of theology is in pointing people to a certain experience, not in describing without contradiction. Now, I think that I think that I should. Um, I think it's time to talk a little bit about purposes for language, and I think we're almost at the end of that agenda. We can double back to um, a sort of a bit more a bit more on that theme, but uh, let me interrupt here because I just yeah. had a thought and it's going to escape me. Sure. Yeah. You know how we talked about Karl Barth and, you know, apparently he was a bit of a Kierkegaard stan in the last century. Well, Rudolf Bollmann was very much also a Kierkegaard stan. And uh, I remember one of his many books, he, he makes the statement that unless your statements are existentialist, your statements are not truly theological. Let me explain what I mean. So in other words, for Rudolf Bultmann, it is not enough to say God justifies sinners. I mean, he would agree that that is true, but to him, it's not good enough. He says that a truly theological statement would say, God has justified me, a sinner. Another one, oh, God is the creator of all human beings. To say, no, God is my creator. And I mean, it's a very subtle change, but it, it makes a huge difference. So the idea here being that if there's not a, a component of experience in our theological statements, uh, Boltman would say that they're not truly theological statements. Bold claim. I, I don't remember how he proved that. I have to go back, but. I just thought I had to share that. Yeah, that sounds like that's that sounds good. Okay. Uh, so there's a contrast here in this book. Maybe this is a bit of a diversion, but on page 55, he talks about faith versus belief on the one hand, and then, uh, sorry, belief or unbelief on one hand, and then faith or offense on the other hand. And when you think about paradox in theology in terms of belief or unbelief, it can be very discouraging because a paradox in theology, like God became human, the incarnation, like how am I going to believe that? 
sounds sounds like I got to believe a contradiction. And a, a famous example in literature is Alice in Wonderland, and I think the Queen of Hearts, and someone who was able to believe three contradictory <laughs> things before breakfast. <laughs> It's like, okay, is this what we're really going for here? Arthur yeah. Heineken brings it up. I guess it was written before 1956. The, uh -huh. the, like we are, that's not what we're going for. The good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the kerygma of the New Testament uh, is not something, is not the good news that if you can believe three contradictory things before breakfast, then you'll be saved. And in fact, the author of this book, I don't have the spot, but he describes that as another form of works righteousness. And uh, for any Lutherans mm -hmm. in the house, mm -hmm. that's the end of the story. That's it's we're, we've, we've convinced you. So. <laughs> the, so it's not a matter of believe the paradox, believe the contradictions, believe or don't believe, because honestly, you can't believe. You can't believe a contradiction. It can't be done. Um, you can only twist yourself into a form of cognitive dissonance or some other undesirable psychological state that um, as we were, as we've heard people mention <laughs> a psychological state in which the religious leaders can now convince you to commit atrocities. According to Voltaire, Voltaire's phrase was something like um, those who can convince you to believe absurdities can convince you to commit atrocities and seems uh seems like it's not too hard to find some examples within reach. Um, believing the absurd is not a spiritual practice. Believing contradictions is not a spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. Making yourself susceptible to strong leaders who, mm -hmm. to whom you pledge allegiance by believing contradictions is not a spiritual practice. Yeah. Uh, this is not what we're going for here. So I guess we finally described what we think is the negative side of paradox and theology uh, is that it can be mistaken for this for the task of believing absurdities, believing contradictions, and then mm -hmm. acting in absurd and contradictory mm -hmm. ways for who knows what's purpose. Yeah. Okay, what's the alternative? Faith versus offense. Well, do you have anything else to add to that or I'll go on to, I'll go on to faith and offense? Uh, no, I just wanted to just say once again, that again, Kierkegaard was Lutheran and he's really building on Luther's theology. He really is big time applying it to his day and time, of course, but uh, I think it's always important. Okay, so it's not belief or unbelief. We're not supposed to believe or unbelieve or disbelieve the paradox. It's about faith or offense. So the paradox is pointing to something of value in the spiritual experience. And that thing can either offend us or, or, or we can entrust ourselves to it. So do we entrust ourselves to the man, Jesus Christ, the God man, or are we offended at him? So in this, I'm going to criticize this in a, in a little bit, but in this scheme, we, we bump into Jesus Christ, the God man. And, and it's not about believing that he's God and believing that he's man and believing with all your might, because these are contradictory things that this is actual. Um, it's about, okay, something has caught our attention. The paradox, the contradiction catches our attention. And once our attention, once our eyes are on Jesus, the God man, it's faith or offense. It's, it's um, my Lord and my God or crucify him. Um, well, there may be a period of indifference, indifference in between, but... <laughs> As we, as we look closer, the closer you look, the higher the stakes become between faith, as in trust, or offense, as in rejection. Uh, and and it, it doesn't matter whether you believe the contradictory thing at all. It's, it's a question of what is your posture with respect to, to, to God in Christ? Yeah. So maybe I will um, share my criticism here. I think that the I think that the I think that this God man paradox is the wrong paradox. Honestly, I think that the proper paradox is that God has exalted the crucified one. This is the actual paradox of the Christian message. 
And in fact, it's not contradictory. Um, it's not a contradictory, there's no logical contradiction there. There's no logical reason why God could not exalt the crucified one. In fact, logic should lead us to realize that if God has exalted the crucified one, if God has made Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, Lord over all, if God has repositioned the worship of God such that it needs to be through Jesus, mm-hmm. if God has been made, if, if the image of God is present in Jesus, if we can, if seeing him is as good as seeing the father, and I phrase that in a way that has no logical contradiction, um, that means something for us. It means, it, it means that our values are upside down, logically. <laughs> in order to be consistent with, the, with God exalting Jesus Christ, the crucified one, we need to realize that um, what God may require of us is not to climb the ladder of humanity as far as possible away from the cross, but to climb down the ladder towards the bottom and serve God's purposes in the places that are normally um, seen as untouchable or undesirable. It means that God is with the weakest and the, and the, and the, the downtrodden and those who are crushed by the state. Um, mm-hmm. God is not, it means that might, what, well, guess what? It means that might doesn't make right like we thought it did. Um, there are many logical consequences from the exaltation of the crucified one. And none of them involve any contradiction at all. They're just hard to stomach as the meme goes that you sent us recently. They're just hard pills to swallow. <laughs> mm. <laughs> the, the absolute paradox is the hard pill to swallow, not the hard contradiction to believe. And so I prefer to focus on that and leave this God-man stuff alone because um, I don't see it as fruitful in the same way. It's only fruitful in as much as it draws our attention to this inversion of values at the, at the, at the cross. And I think that that's sort of the way to go forward with the, with the, with the theology of the cross. I think that's, that's a very good criticism. And I think its greatest strength is that it's something that you can find there. Just slowly and carefully reading the New Testament, you can see it, you can find it, unlike a lot of this highly developed Christology paradigm that is being used here. Okay, well, we're on our last point then, which is language and its uses. And I said this at the beginning. Um, I, for my, when I did seminary, my thesis was on a philosopher named Paul Moser. And, and I, I read his um, big three philosophy monographs before I got into his sort of theological stuff. And one of the books is called Philosophy After Objectivity. And it took me about four times to try to read it. So I read the first chapter probably like four times because I kept on quitting because um, it was very difficult to understand. <laughs> it was more like reading a math book than reading a uh, literature because that's it's analytic philosophy. So mm-hmm. we're getting as far away from paradox as we can get. Anyway, philosophy after objectivity. That's the title. And this point that Heineken makes in this book and the point that Paul Moser makes in that book are very similar. The idea is that the language language rests upon what Moser calls a semantic foundation or semantic foundationalism that words mean to the interpreter, whatever the interpreter intends for them to mean. And you may think that's crazy. That's a free for all. (laughs) Well, yeah, it is crazy. It's also the way it actually is. (laughs) The only reason that the sounds I'm making mean what they mean is because of the habits I've formed as an English language speaker raised among other English language speakers. Um, I interpret, I make it, I've made commitments in my life to interpret certain words to mean certain things. And so when I want to mean that thing, I use that word. That's, there's nothing sacred about this particular sound or the particular symbols that, that we use necessarily. Um, and, but furthermore, 
not only do I do the words mean what I interpret them to mean, but they serve whatever purpose I, I, whatever purpose I have for them. So not all words serve the purpose of describing. Like a great example is think of like a expletive, an expletive. What does an expletive do? What does it mean when somebody swears or says something that we won't say on our family podcast? So. <laughs> well, they're trying to shock or grab someone's attention or intimidate or offend. They're not trying to inform. And it actually has very little to do with the historical meat, the etymological meaning of that curse word. Uh, in Canada, we have two official languages, and I noticed all of a sudden that all the Francophone curse words have to do with the Catholic Church and all the elements of the Catholic Church. Anything sacred, they use it as a, as a curse word. Um, in the English curse words seem to be mostly about um, sex for the most part and, and excrement. <laughs> but what about Spanish curse words? Where do they come from? <laughs> Or do you not know any? Yeah, so so words have a purpose. And so all that to say, when when we talk about the incarnation and we talk about it as a mystery or a paradox, what what the the purpose of a mystery or paradox is to point at something. So I've, in my mind, what I do is whenever I hear a theological sentence that's contradictory, instead of just throwing it in the trash, like I used to do, I just kind of replace it with the word behold. So when Karl Barth allegedly says the impossible possibility, instead of going, ah, this guy is useless. I say, well, I'll just translate that as behold. <laughs> he wants me to behold something whether i can or can't like that's another story but paradox in theology is just a way to say behold and and this is why experiential theology is so key because behold what what are we beholding if we're just beholding more and more concepts a big pyramid of concepts upon concepts then uh it, we're just doing fiction work um the question is is there anything in the human experience, historically, collectively, individually, personally, that we're supposed to behold? And, and I will give theologians a lot of latitude to use contradictory language if they're, if they're in fact pointing me towards something worth seeing. Yeah. Well, again, this is all very technical, but I think uh, a lot of people intuitively understand the reason and rationality has limitations. This is absolutely the case when it comes to religion, theology, right? Because we're dealing with things that are truly beyond us. And it's so important to just be aware of our limitations. Our subject matter here, God, is, is bigger than we can handle. And so there has to be a lot of humility. Of course, we don't want to be irrational. We don't want to be illiterate when it comes to the Bible, reality, and so forth. I think we want to know as much as we can know. But we have to realize that it's it's truly beyond us. And we're limited. And we're never going to fully know. Yeah, so when I, when I listen to... Um... When I read a creed or read Trinitarian theology or even incarnation theology or even Kierkegaard's God-man talk, um, I don't take much of it super literally anymore. And that's going to be scary in a sense because you think, what are you hanging on to if you're not taking it literally? It's like literally or bust. Well, that's not true. Um, what I see happening is people down throughout the ages have experienced what I describe as the spirit of God, as the spirit of Jesus. And they've tried to give voice to that experience and they've tasted and seen um, 
and and they've tried to describe it and they used the tools available to them at the time so it should be no surprise that the theology of the new testament reads very differently than the theology of the ecumenical creeds it's not it they're written hundreds of years apart from each other the new testament is sort of the first 150 years i'm guessing um as an estimate of the of christianity and then the creeds are the three 50s onwards um so there's a lot of space there and there's a lot of cultural change and there's a total inversion of the dominant ethnic group from being jewish christians to being dominantly greek or non-jewish christians so of course the language is different to try to describe the experience of the spirit of god as the spirit of jesus the language will change over time and so in the modern world the language has also got to change we in theology theology needs to describe has to have the, the continuity is not in the words the continuity is in the experience and we kind of we kind of get a sense of what other people experienced by reading their words and they're not always fully non-contradictory sometimes they have sort of contradictory elements in them but that's because there's two features of the experience that need to be described even if they can't be reconciled in the model at the time of the description and and that makes a lot of sense so 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 yeah i mean in that sense paradox is okay yeah but in in the other sense i still kind of cling to a sense of a sense of of confidence in some ability to reason uh, uh as for me i try to be precise with my language maybe that's just my personality so i will try not to be very paradoxical in the language that I use. I'll try to describe things in a way that leaves space, um, that leaves space to avoid the contradictions that may be there. And and like I said earlier, I'm trying to to point towards what I consider to be the morally significant aspects of the Christian message. And and I think that the mystery of the gospel in the New Testament is in no ways a paradox. Uh, it's for Paul that mystery is just a surprise. He's just surprised at what God has done in Christ and how God has included all the nations. He's surprised. The mystery has been revealed and it's a surprise and now he knows. It's not like a perpetual ongoing cloud of confusion. Paul is not very confused if you, as you read the New Testament, that you read his, his perspective. So, so yeah, I, that's that. I, I kind of, I like that. And I'd like to emulate that, this sort of, I wouldn't want to encourage confusion either, even if we're dealing with mystery. But I'll give other people latitude to do it their way if they want to. As long as they're experiencing the good news, that's what I want to see. Yeah, I like how you ended it. As long as they experience the good news, I think that's also where I land. Uh, you know, people talk about the sacrifice of the intellect. I mean, a lot of people are scandalized. Like I said, just by the thought of creation. They cannot, they cannot grasp. They stagger at the idea of creation. And then to talk about incarnation. Wow. These are very, very deep, radical, paradigm-shifting thoughts. And so I mean I, I, I can understand. But again, ultimately. I want people to experience the Christian faith. And I want them to understand that they're never going to comprehend everything. It's incomprehensible, ultimately. I, I, I do believe that we want to be intelligent, we want to be smart, but I think that there is a little bit of what the author talks about here, a crucifixion of the understanding, a crucifixion of the understanding. I think, I think we need that. I really do. Because again, we live in a day and age where we have placed way too much trust in our own achievements and, and look at with it and look at what they have got us in many ways. So we need to question some things. And I think uh, good for us to be humbled a bit and 
the incarnation is definitely one of those things that that will make you that, that will uh, puzzle you and it will lead to questioning a lot of things. So I think it's a good thing. But ultimately, I mean, I want people to experience the gospel. And that's ultimately what we want. And the language of paradox or allegory is very helpful because that's all you can do when you're trying to describe an experience. Well, thank you so much. That's the episode. I'm pretty sure you can hear the fireworks. It was it was a hot episode, and uh, we'll see you next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Experiential Theology Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it and found it helpful. Please rate the podcast in whatever platform you use and share it with whomever you think would enjoy our subject here. You could also leave a voice message by going to anchor.fm backslash experiential theology.